0: Alright, well, good morning everyone. Good morning. Nice to see everybody today. We'll be continuing the study in Galatians. So last week we had our our snow day. Got the week off, alright. Um, but during that time is probably one of the first and only times I've ever built a snowman. I don't know if you guys have ever done that before. When my Sun Tommy, you start with a small snowball and you, and then you just start rolling and the snow starts sticking to it and it just gets bigger and bigger. And so, yeah, that's what we did Monday. We started, a, got a big old snowball, big burly thing and then um, made the middle section, right? And that was so big my kids couldn't lift it. So I had to call my wife outside and help us <laughs> lift it. And then we put, made the head, right? um and then we made uh the eyes out of hershey kisses put the carrot in the nose put a a piece of straw in the mouth right looked good it was like a farmer had a hat scarf um my daughter evelyn named him levi that was pretty cool and so we took pictures you know pretty proud of ourselves and then that was monday but um by thursday old Levi was looking pretty sad. (laughs) Sun had come out. The eyes fell out. Nose was droopy. Um, Yeah, it was pretty sad. We had to say goodbye to our our old friend Levi. But uh, it reminded me kind of of our own works in the gospel. In our same way, like our works for God are like Levi the snowman. And as soon as the sun comes out and shines on our works, they melt away. And as soon as the glory of the gospel shines into the frozen heart of a sinner, all of the self-righteousness and self-reliance that we think we need melts away. And so here's how we can assure ourselves Right? that we are not depending upon our own works for our own salvation, and that we have trusted in the true gospel, the only gospel, is that are our good works for ourselves or are they for God? You see, once our selfish works are out of the way, you can see clearly the beauty of the work of Christ on the cross you see your resurrected Redeemer alone. And if we have the true gospel, friends, then we have Christ. And that's the reason for Paul's letter to the Galatians. You know, Paul's letters are always seasoned with salt. This one, though, is peppered with a ghost pepper of love. But it defends the exclusivity of Christ And the one true gospel like no other book in the Bible. Paul severe in his tone. He is emotional. However, he doesn't let his emotions overtake his logic and his commitment to correct the churches in Galatia with the sound doctrine. And he receives this shocking news from the Galatian churches. And so, in this introduction by Paul, he splashes... An ice-cold wake-up call on the slumbering Galatians. I can imagine the excitement, though, from the Galatian church. Brand new, right? They receive a letter from their brother Paul, excited to hear what he has to say. Expecting maybe a Thanksgiving greeting. Only to open it and begin reading it and revealing it to the congregation And then coming to our text this morning and reading the words of the stunned apostle. However, he does love them. In Galatians 4, 19-20, Paul writes, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So it says, painful as childbirth. Paul to hear this news of a people that he has preached free grace to, free salvation, turning back to the bondage of law. And so this little letter, various times throughout church history, has been used to free Christians from the bondage of legalism. And back into the liberty of freedom. It's been called the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther loved it so much he compared it with his wife. He says, The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine. A commentator said, He paid her the highest tribute when he called St. Paul's epistle to the Galatians my Catherine von Bora. And so in our text this morning, we will see Paul's uncompromising stance on the liberty and freedom found in Christ alone. The entire epistle is about crushing the Judaizers and their false teachings, so much so it's in every single chapter of this book. And So as we turn here, we see Paul remind the Galatian churches and the New Testament believers that there's only one gospel that saves. But do you believe that? In John MacArthur's book, Hard to Believe, he quotes a man named Robert Shuler. He wrote, self-esteem, the new reformation. He attacked the Protestant Reformation, stating, it is precisely at this point that classical theology has erred in its insistence that theology be God-centered and not man-centered. He goes on to say, Success is to be defined as the gift of self esteem that God gives us as a reward for our sacrificial service in building self esteem in others. Win or lose, if we follow God's plan as faithfully as we can, we will feel good about ourselves. And that is success. That's the gospel that's being preached today self esteem. We have around 95 active churches this morning in Hutchinson. Most are preaching and teaching a different gospel. A gospel contrary to the one that you've received through the Spirit and through His Word. Men and women, though, just like you, who want to worship and love Jesus, and yet maybe by itching ears or being led astray by wolves, in sheep's clothing, who place burdens around their neck with works and traditions that pull them farther and farther away from the true gospel. And so, friends, if you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. And so then, how do we guard ourselves from deserting the true gospel and resting in Christ's work alone? So I'm glad you asked. Let's read the text. I'll pray, and then we'll examine this remarkable letter together. Galatians 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant. Of Christ. Our gracious God and Father, we praise you this morning for the assurance of your love, the love that you have set upon us for all eternity, and that love beautifully displayed on the cross through your Son. And it's in Him, Lord, we find rest. We find our contentment, and we find our delight. I ask, Father, that you would help us this morning to see one, there is only one true gospel. There's nothing else to add. His work is all sufficient, all glorious. It's more than enough. Help us, we ask this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Galatians 1, 6-10, Paul reveals to you three strategies to use to guard yourselves from deserting the God who called you, so that you may rest in your redeemed salvation as a slave of Christ. And so the first strategy he has here is you must resist the astonishing turn to another gospel verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The news of the Galatian churches turning to a different gospel hit the Apostle Paul in the chest like a meteor leaving a crater in his heart. You know, as, as older I get, um, the less things amaze me. Right? Right? For instance, does anyone here not have a microwave? I, Ours is broken, so ours doesn't work. But does anyone else have not have a microwave? Like, this is an amazing invention, the microwave. It was invented on October 8th, 1945, not that long ago. Does anyone in here like Pop-Tarts? One person? Okay, okay, that's good. Well, oh, two, good, great, right. thanks. So... If you read the box on Pop Tarts, here are the actual instructions to, to to cook them. Place in microwave for three seconds. That's amazing. Three seconds? Even today people are like, oh, that's too long. I can't wait. <laughs> that's amazing. Right? And I think that's what Paul's saying here. Three seconds. You've turned that quickly, to another gospel. That fast. The Greek word for I am amazed here is a conventional expression in Greek letters. It signaled astonishment, but more in like a rebuking way, a disapproval, disappointment. He is stunned at the quick desertion by the Galatians. And this verb for deserting here is used as a military term, right? With deserting, um, known as AWOL, vanishing completely. But it's still in the present tense here. And it shows the Galatians, they're still in the process of complete apostasy. They are, however, well on their way, which is why Paul expresses such urgency in his tone. You know, my son, he likes to play a game with me. He always He's like, hey, Dad, look, there's a skunk. And I look, and there's no skunk, and he laughs. He's like, I can't believe you fell for that. Every day. But in the same way, Paul's like, you gullible Galatians. I can't believe you're falling for this. After being set free, you're turning back to the law, or turning to the law. And so this quick desertion, Of him, right? Him. It's interesting to notice Paul speaks of those Galatians who embrace this false teaching as deserting him, the person that is God Himself. In a similar way, Israel quickly deserted God in Exodus. In Exodus 32, verses seven through fourteen. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? God changed his mind, but that God, through the threat of his wrath against Israel, caused Moses to intercede for his chosen people. And through that, he, God, could display his restraining grace and his covenant-keeping character. And so with intercession on our mind that Moses did for Israel, Paul continues in verse 7, "...him who called you in the grace of Christ." Jesus displays His grace for sinners like us by His never-ending intercession for you at the right hand of the Father. In Hodges' systematic theology, he describes the intercession of Christ like this. One, His appearing before God on our behalf as the sacrifice for our sins as our high priest on the ground of whose work we receive the remission of our sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and all needed good. 2. Defense against the sentence of the law and the charges of Satan, who is the great accuser. 3. His offering himself as our surety, not only that the demands of justice shall be shown to be satisfied, but that his people shall be obedient and faithful. 4. The oblation of the persons of the redeemed, sanctifying their prayers and all their services, rendering them acceptable to God through the savor of His own merits. That is Christ interceding for you right now at the right hand of the Father. Stephen Charnock writes this about our Redeemer's merits. He said, God has smelled in it so sweet a savor that it has fully pleased Him. He can now pardon the sins of believers with the glory of his righteousness as well as of his grace. He can legally justify a repenting sinner. God has been served in the passion of the Redeemer. His justice and holiness were glorified and the law accomplished. The honor of God is preserved and the author of the law righted the justice of God sweetened. By this propitiation for sin, God is rendered propitious to guilty man and stretches out his arms of love instead of brandishing his sword of vengeance. There is nothing now remains to be done. He goes on to say, Let natural man imitate God in an acceptance of this sacrifice. God accepts Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. Do you? Man can't save you. Don't seek after them. We must seek Christ. He has accomplished for you what no man can ever do. He is the once-for-all sacrifice for all sins. In Hebrews 10:14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so Paul's saying, you gullible Galatians you're turning away from that Gospel? You're turning away from that Redeemer, that intercessor? You're turning away from grace. Grace. Receiving a gift you don't deserve. And this grace displayed perfectly in the free gift of the Gospel given to you by God Himself. Paul's saying you're turning away from that grace. To a different gospel, and so Paul continues, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you, and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. Not that there is another one. This was not like the gospel preached by others in Philippians 1:18 that Paul addresses. John Calvin states that Paul's Paul declares that it is not a gospel, but a mere disturbance. <clears throat> The word of gospel, of course, means good news, right? However, the gospel that fascinated the Galatians here wasn't good news. And this new, different gospel wasn't bad news. It was just news. It was worthless. It was nothing. Because the bad news is is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, and God is just, and sin must be paid for. God is holy and righteous, and He will destroy sin and sinners. That's the bad news. But the good news, the gospel, is that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Satisfying God's wrath and judgment against your sin, thereby setting you free from the penalty of that sin, But not only is that good news, but he also takes away the shame and the guilt of your sins upon himself, and his blood washes it away. But not only is that good news, but he sends you his Holy Spirit to indwell in you, that seals you, he seals you, in your salvation. And you receive a new heart that loves what God loves and hates what God hates. And not only is that good news, but the God, the Father, adopts you as a son and a daughter. And not only is that good news, but you are now the bride of Christ. And Christ is returning for his bride. There's nothing to add to that. There's no room there. And so the Judaizers they try to add circumcision. Prosperity, health, and wealth gospels try to add money. Charismatics, I don't know what they're trying to add. But troublemakers add their own distortions to that simple gospel. These troublemakers have infected the church since the birth of the church like a virus. And even like today, not even face masks can stop them. Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 29, he says... I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day, night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And in Acts fifteen, twenty-four it says, "Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from among us and troubled you with words." Unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. And in Paul's final exhortation in the book of Romans, chapter 16, verses 17 through 18, he writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So this cry to the Galatians in this letter not only goes out to them, it goes out to the Romans, to the Corinthians, to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, to Titus, to Timothy. And it still rings true today in Hutchinson. He preaches with passion and urgency in all of his letters because the gospel is at stake. He says, you don't need to look for another gospel. You need to look to Christ. Spurgeon said, stand at the foot of the cross and count the purple drops by which you have been cleansed. See the thorn crown. Mark his scourged shoulders, still gushing with crimsoned rills. And if you do not lie prostrate, prostrate on the ground before that cross, you have never seen it. And so, then, how do we resist the astonishing turn to another gospel? I've listed six ways. There are many more. But first, you must meditate on the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Second, must meditate on God's word, scriptures. In Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And third, actively pursue holiness and righteousness. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 12, he writes, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And fourth, strive to live a life of obedience and self-denial. First Peter 2.11, Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And fifth, live a life of prayer. Psalm 145, 18, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. And in sixth, keep no sin hidden and unconfessed to God. In 1 John 1, 9, He writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, friends, we must resist the temptation to make an astonishing turn to a different gospel. We do not need to search for or desire anything beyond Christ. In him, we have all all that we need. In him alone, our only comfort in life and death is him. But not only must you resist turning away from the true gospel, you must also resist the false teaching from the accursed teachers. In verse eight, Paul continues, "But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed." So the issue that Paul is stating here is the content of what is preached, the purity of the gospel. Not the reputation or the abilities of the messenger who proclaims it. So Paul says, even if an angel from heaven comes and preaches something different, if I preach something different, the angel or myself is to be accursed. As only he can, Luther wrote about this, that which does not teach Christ is not apostolic. Even if Peter and Paul be the teachers... On the other hand, that which does teach Christ is apostolic, even if Judas, Annas, Pilate, or Herod should propound it. As Paul will go on to tell us later in this letter, he is forced to even confront Peter in Galatians 3 to his face because Peter gives in to the pressure from the Judaizers. and So Paul must correct him because the gospel is at stake. He continues, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So Paul says, not only if myself or an angel or if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to the gospel that you were preached, let him be accursed, anathema, damned. Let the wrath of God be on him. So false teachers speak half-truths and lies. They make promises that are as empty as the Chick-fil-A parking lot today. <laughs> and From my study on false teachers, there seems to be two categories that they fall into. The first is a teacher that knows what they're teaching is wrong, but he teaches it anyways because he knows he'll be recognized by the congregation for it. And it's usually for money or honor. And second is a false teacher that actually thinks he's teaching the truth. In this case, the person has the awful advantage of appearing to be sincere. But sincerity is not the standard. The Bible is. God's word. And so Paul addresses the issue of false preaching. The Galatians are falling away because they're believing a false gospel. And that is because these wolves have encircled these baby churches these new churches in galatia like a pack of hungry wolves encircling a baby lamb false teachers are always seeking to devour they're always in the churches this is where they go cuz that's where the sheep are and they're always dressed as sheep they're in sheep's clothing matthew 7:15 but they're servants of satan and they disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. In 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13-15, he writes, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And so this last week when we had no grace life, I had an extra week to kind of study. And some, from time to time I like to like listen to sermons from other churches in the area in case I ever bump into somebody that goes to another church, can kind of connect to them before sharing the true gospel with them. Um, but there's false teachers here in Hutch as well. I'm going to paraphrase just some, some things that I heard. and You can Google them or go on YouTube if you want. But here's, uh, here's some quotes. I believe in you. You are beautiful. God is waiting for your permission to let Him in. Turn to your neighbor and say, let Him in. It's not good news. It's not really bad news. It's junk. It's worthless. I mean, I don't know what they do when persecution comes and the martyrs on a stake let him in. These Judaizers believe that salvation comes by adding Moses to Christ. False teachers today believe salvation comes from adding the Pope to Christ, Joseph Smith to Christ, Charles Russell to Christ, but let me ask you this, what are you adding to Christ? Maybe church attendance, you're here every week, serving in the nursery, not watching rated R movies, maybe, not drinking before 6, Your offering and the collection plate, maybe. But friends, you have nothing to add to the gospel, to the work of Christ. But false teachers teach otherwise. For example, the Roman Catholic Church. Paul says that if anyone preaches to you a different gospel than what I'm preaching to you today, let them be anathema. Let them be cursed. But listen to Rome and the Council of Trent. Sixth Session on Justification, January 13, 1547, which has never been revoked by Rome. The decrees are confirmed by both the Second Vatican Council, 1962 and 1965, and the Official Catechism of the Catholic Church of 1992, Canon 9. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning, that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. Canon 12. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy, which remit sins for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone that justifies us, let him be anathema. Canon 24. If anyone says that justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely fruits and signs of justification obtained, not the cause of its increase, let him be anathema. Do you remember the words of Jesus in John 19.30? To die It's finished. There's nothing more to do. You can't start running a race when they're already handing out the medals. Christ finished. Christ has won. And so Paul calls people that denies, deny Christ's victory either outright or by implication by adding anything to Christ that they become enemies of the cross. Philippians 3.18-20, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you fall under the spell of an accursed teacher who tries to change the gospel, you will become enemies of the cross. In his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says that God's word does not change. He says God's truth does not change. It is forever settled in the heavens. And so how do we combat or how do we defend ourselves from the teaching of accursed teachers? By turning to the Word of God. Most of the false teachers, it's it's pretty simple. Nothing they say corresponds with God's Word. Everything they say corrupts it. Nothing lines up. And so therefore we must test everything we hear with Scripture and trust in the word of God that never changes our true and steady anchor. It keeps us from drifting away into a sea of wolves, drowning in confusion. God's word. And here's what the Bible says. First Thessalonians five, sixteen to twenty-one. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. 2 Timothy 3.16 Paul writes, All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And unlike the uh, accursed teachers, God's word is perfect. Psalm 19.7 the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And in James 1.25, he writes, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He actually continues in verse 26, he says, "If." Anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Accursed accursed teachers come and go, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Infallible, it's inerrant. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119, 89. And so the first strategy Paul gives you to guard yourselves from deserting the true gospel, from deserting God Himself, (laughs) right, is to meditate on the true gospel. The second strategy is to resist the teaching from accursed teachers by trusting in God's Word. And the third and final strategy Paul reveals is that you must resist the approval of man. The approval of man. That's verse 10. He says, For my now... Seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, am I now going back to the law? Now, after being set free? Seeking the approval of man by going back to the law? Or am I seeking God? And this rhetorical question will be answered next week completely in Grace Life. But the false teachers have put into the Galatians' mind that Paul was teaching an easy believism. He taught Christ alone, by faith alone. It's too easy. Paul's critics, the Judaizers, it's it's too simple. You have to do something. It can't be just grace. They say, you know what? Paul just wants you to, to like him. He wants to be famous. He wants you to wants you to honor him. You know, he wants to enhance his own reputation. Yeah, we remember Paul as Saul, a zealous pharisee and violent defender of the law. If Paul wanted to please man, right? He would have remained a pharisee, receiving the applause by all the Jewish leaders for defending The law. But he was captured by God. And it was revealed to him that he must suffer for Christ's name. And God being rich in mercy came to Paul. He says as one untimely born. And made him an apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul had to continually defend himself throughout scripture of these accusations. That he was a man pleaser. In 1 Thessalonians 2.4, he says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And In Ephesians 6, he says, Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And in Colossians 3.22, he says, Bondservants, slaves, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. One commentator writes, Paul's uncompromising attitude is reflected in the severity of his language in condemning the counterfeit gospel, and it's proof positive that he is no man pleaser. And so, I have some traits here of what a man-pleaser looks like, or a people-pleaser looks like. This is not just to evaluate if this is Paul, but maybe to take a look inward and see if we struggle with some of these things. But the first trait of a people-pleaser is pretending to agree with everyone. Right? Not rocking the boat kind of thing. But as we read this, this letter, Paul rocks the boat here. He doesn't Agree with these Judaizers and he's not afraid to tell them. He's not afraid to write it down and give it to them. Another trait of a person, people pleaser, is feeling responsible for how other people feel. They tend to people pleasers tend to feel responsible if someone's upset. But Paul here, he doesn't care about their feelings. He doesn't care about their desire to work for their salvation. What he cares about is Christ. What he cares about is the true gospel. We should feel the same. Another trait is apologizing often. People say they're sorry a lot. Right? But as I read this, I don't see that. He's not saying sorry. He's not sorrowful for defending the true gospel. For defending the freedom found in Christ. Another trait is struggling to say no. Some people have a difficulty saying no. Not Paul. That's what he says. No. There's no other gospel. <clears throat> Another trait. Avoiding conflict at all costs. Right? That's, that's Paul's M.O. That's what he does. Defends the gospel through conflict. Sorry. Another trait is feeling resentful. People pleasers may feel resentful when their efforts to please others go unnoticed or unappreciated. There's no resent here. This is not what this is. This is love for God's people. This is for them to see the beauty of the gospel and the work of Jesus on their behalf. And the last one here is ignoring or withholding Feelings to keep others comfortable. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul wants them to feel uncomfortable. Because our only comfort in life and death. Right? It's God's love, holiness, and righteousness. And so Paul ends this remarkable section by stating the obvious. If I were trying to please man, I wouldn't be a slave to Christ. That's what that word servant is. I'm a slave of Christ." Paul liked to describe himself as a slave in relation to Christ in Romans 1.1, Philippians 1.1, Titus 1.1. And this Greek word also describes Moses, David, Elijah, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, this word describes Jesus in Philippians 2.7, Christian leaders in 2 Timothy, the apostles, the Old Testament prophets, James, Peter, Jude, John, and Christians, the tribulation saints in Revelation 7-3, and all believers in Revelation 19, 2, 5, 22, 3, and 6. Paul is saying that God has set us free from the worst kind of slavery, having purchased us with the precious blood of His Son. And so how Foolish, then, would it be for us to give up the liberty that we enjoy in Christ, the ability to serve Him freely and fully, and how ridiculous would it be, then, to place ourselves back into a slave relationship to anyone or anything but Him. It's like serving 25 years in prison, being released, and then robbing a bank because you like to be chained to a wall. And so we must ask ourselves then, will we fear man so much that we'll deny the true gospel? Will we attempt to keep the law or fear God? We must repent from our sins, take our faith off of ourselves, and place it on the finished work of Christ. A.W. Tozer said, the fear of God is astonished reverence. I believe that the reverential fear of God mixed with love and fascination and astonishment and admiration and devotion is the most enjoyable state and the most satisfying emotion the human soul can know. Paul was astonished at the Galatians' desertion of God when they should have had an astonishing fear of God. and So that brings us then to how do you resist desiring the approval of man? And that's by fearing the Lord. In Matthew ten, twenty six 26-28 He writes, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And in Proverbs 1.7, writes, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Deuteronomy 6.13, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. And in Psalm 2.11, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. In John fourteen twenty seven, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. In other words, don't fear the world. The fear of God will bring you peace. And so, we see here, friends, that we don't need the approval of man, especially if you're busy fearing God you will not seek it. You'll be safe from trying to seek the approval of man. We need the approval of God. And Christ's death for your sin was approved for God. So if you are in Christ, you are approved by God for the sake of His Son. So then, as we conclude, resist the astonishing turning away from God and turn in faith to your loving Redeemer resist the lies of the accursed teachers and trust in the accepted sacrifice of the good teacher and resist seeking the approval of man and believe that God loves you and has approved you for the sake of his son and remember if you add anything to Christ you lose Christ you have all you need in life and in death in Christ and there's a there's an old story that Abraham Lincoln went down to the slave block to buy a slave girl. And as she looked at the white man bidding on her, she figured he was another white man going to buy her and then abuse her. He won the bid and as he was walking away with his property, he said, young lady, you are free. She said, what that mean? It means you are free. Does that mean, she said, that I can say whatever I want to say? Lincoln said, yes, my dear, you can say whatever you want to say. Does that mean, she said, that I can be whatever I want to be? Lincoln said, yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? He said, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. And the girl, with tears streaming down her face, said, Then I will go with you. Mm -hmm. Go with Christ, friends. He has set you free. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, how can we understand this grace? Found in this good news. We realize, Lord, that we are incapable of working our way to heaven. It's too wide. The chasm is too deep. But, Lord, we rejoice in the knowledge, Lord that you have given us through your word and through the spirit of the work of your son on the cross to redeem sinners. And Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for that grace and that mercy and for the hope of eternity in heaven with you and worship with no sin, with new bodies, with nothing but perfect love displayed before us and to you. In worship. So Father. I pray for any professing Christians. In here this morning. That. Desire to know you. Father. Would you plant the seed. Of grace. Of freedom. Found in Christ alone. That his work is sufficient. For all of us. That we can rest. That we can come to him and rest there's nothing more to be done and Father for those Lord who are truly saved I ask that this word Lord would serve as a reminder that your beloved son lived the life that we couldn't, died the death we deserve and now offers us Father, access to you, without wrath, without penalty, but true freedom in you. Oh, Lord, how we long for that day, that we're face to face with you. Father, I ask that you would help us, help us to glorify you, help us to love one another. Help us be the church, the bride, Lord clean and spotless as we await our Savior's return. And it's in His name, Father, the author and perfecter of our faith that we pray. Amen. Thanks.